Good morning. Are we all together? I'm Bronwyn Maddox. I'm Director of the Institute for Government. <coughs> Delighted to have you here this morning to discuss the, uh, uh, the annual launch of our Almanac Whitehall Monitor 2018 version with uh, a tremendous team led by Gavin Freegard, who's going to talk to us about it, Lucy Campbell, Aaron Chang, uh, Alice Lilly and Charlotte Baker, who've been working very hard and intensively with the rest of the Institute. Well done. Also for getting against the tough competition of the Prime Minister's speech in Davos, uh, the number two uh, mention on the Today programme. I'm delighted to have as well with us today Dr. Sarah Wollaston, Conservative MP for Totnes, of course, and Chair of the Liaison and Health Committees, who's going to be picking up some of the points, particularly on the parliamentary front, but really what we can do to use this kind of data to make government work better. Um, with that, Gavin, take us through the main points. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Bronwyn. And good morning, everybody, and welcome to Whitehall <laughs> Monitor 2018, the general election, Brexit and beyond. Over the last few months, as you've heard, my brilliant team and I have been looking through more than 500 data sets across government to build up a picture of the size, shape and performance of government in the UK. This year's report, which you can find in its entirety online, has 94 charts. Now, 94 charts during a 20-minute presentation, that works out as 12.8 seconds per chart. So is everybody ready? <laughs> I'm not actually going to do that, don't worry. It's, one of the, it's the real life equivalent of one of those Twitter threads that starts ominously one out of 94. Um, what I'm going to do instead is show you three of the main stories that we've picked out from analysing all of that data. One is about politics, one about the civil service, and one about data and transparency. On politics, the political situation following the early election has made governing more challenging in a number of ways that we'll explore. The civil service has grown in terms of staff numbers, largely because of Brexit, but it still needs to be more diverse. And on data and transparency, government is less open than it was, particularly on measures like freedom of information, and not using data as well as it should. As I said, the full report has got eight chapters packed full of everything from the age of the civil service to how government measures its performance. But we think these are the three stories that run through the whole thing. So let's start with politics. Cast your minds back to 2015, if you can. There was a general election in the aftermath of a contentious referendum and an election result that didn't quite go as we all expected. Yes, that's the House of Commons in 2015 and you can see that those blue blocks just crossed the finishing line, giving David Cameron a slender majority. Fast forward two years, we had a general election in the aftermath of a contentious referendum and an election result which didn't quite go as we were all expecting. This time, however, it lost the Prime Minister, now Theresa May, her majority, and you can see that those sort of dark red blocks right at the finishing line of the Democratic Unionists are what are helping her to govern at the moment. Now, the very calling of an early election had consequences. It left departments confused about their priorities. It disrupted parliamentary scrutiny. But it also had some more immediate political consequences in terms <coughs> of the result. And one of those was not giving the Prime Minister such a free hand in being able to reshuffle her cabinet. Now, behind me, you can see governments of all stripes, quite literally, back to 1997. And this chart is going to show you the percentage of cabinet attendees that were new to their posts after various reshuffles. Now, Obviously, when Tony Blair and David Cameron became Prime Minister, everybody was new, as you might expect. 
There was also quite a high degree of turnover when Gordon Brown and Theresa May took over, wanting to stamp some authority on their new administrations. But even if we look at the other general elections in that time period, we can see that turnover doesn't really drop below 40%. What happened in 2017? Well, actually much lower. 25%, a quarter of cabinet ministers were new to their role. Now, cabinet stability is a good thing. Ministers often get moved around too much just as they're getting to grips with their brief and with governing. But in this instance, it looks like it may have been the Prime Minister having to maintain that delicate Brexit balance in her cabinet. Of course, it could be that she did want to minimise turnover. If only we had another reshuffle that we could look at in order to distinguish that. And as I'm sure you're all aware, two weeks ago, and in flagrant disregard of our print deadline, <laughs> the Prime Minister did in fact conduct another reshuffle. Now again, it was regarded as not actually changing that much at cabinet level, but in fact, quite a lot did change even at that level. Take the Ministry of Justice, for example. David Gork became the sixth Justice Secretary since 2010, at a time when the Ministry of Justice faces large challenges, not least the crisis in our prisons. Or take the Department for Digital, Culture, Media and also Sport, where Matt Hancock became the sixth Secretary of State in the same time frame. Whatever happened to him? <laughs> We also had David Liddington become the fifth minister for the Cabinet Office since 2015, and Esther McVeigh become the fifth Work and Pensions Secretary since 2016. Now, if we move beyond the Graham Brady bunch there, and look at all ministers across government, junior ministers and their importance is often overlooked, but they tend to be the ones doing a lot of hard work in departments and in parliament. And turnover at that level was even more extreme. So this chart is going to show you all ministers across government and when they came into their posts. Some of them, Hunt at Health, Gibb at Education, came in under the coalition. A few others survived from the Cameron era and many others from Theresa May's first set of appointments in 2016. But the vast majority of ministers are new to their roles either in the post-election reshuffle or in the January reshuffle. 71% of all ministers across government have taken their roles since <coughs> the general election. And you can see there's particular turnover at the Cabinet Office, 100% new a few weeks ago, and three quarters at the Ministry of Justice. Now, somewhere else there's been a lot of turnover is in the House of Commons Whips Office. We've had two different chief whips and three different deputy chief whips since the start of November. And 13 out of 18 whips were new to their roles in January. Now, parliamentary management is important at the best of times, but particularly under a minority government situation. And one of the things that's likely to drive the whips dotty, as it were, <laughs> sorry, um, is the prospect of being defeated in the Commons. Now, this shows you all of the Commons defeats since 1919, when they happened and the size of those defeats. And actually, there aren't that many of them, really, in the grand scheme of things. But if we put in the political parties that were in power, the Greys, National Government, Blue the Conservatives, Red Labour, if we just highlight the minority government periods, you can see the concentration of defeats, particularly in 1924 under Ramsay MacDonald, and particularly 1976 to 79, where James Callaghan's administration was <coughs> defeated more than 30 times in the House of Commons. Now, so far, the current government has been defeated only once, just before Christmas. 
But the hard work that goes into trying to avoid those defeats in compromising consensus building can slow things down. It means the EU withdrawal bill hasn't made the progress that was expected against its timetable, for example. That goes to the Lords next week, and the Lords are even more likely to defeat things than the Commons. So we have the EU withdrawal bill not going as quickly as we might have expected, pieces of Brexit legislation still to be introduced, and at least a 1,000 pieces of secondary legislation expected over the next session. That's an awful lot for Parliament to get through and against a vanishing timetable to March 2019. Now, it's not just about Brexit, of course. Government was already facing major challenges in delivering major projects and in public services. And some of the departments responsible for those public services have already experienced deep budget reductions and will do so further to 2020. Now, this chart is going to show you a particular type of spending and the percentage change from 2015-16 uh, predicted to 2020. Now, the spending you're going to see here is something called Ardell, not David Jason's lovable Only Fools and Horses character. It is instead the day-to-day -day spending on people and policies. So let's start with the Treasury, just as an example. You can see that thick line shows you the percentage change that's already happened, actual outturn, and the dotted line shows you the forecast to 2019-20. Now, a number of other departments ha are expecting to see budget rises over that time period. And just to say, the Department for Exiting the European Union and the Department for International Trade do not appear on this chart because they're new. Bearing that in mind, which departments do people think are likely to see budget increases? Health? DEFRA? Any others? It's Department for International Development, for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, Health and the Ministry of Defence. Now, that obviously means that everybody else is looking set for a budget reduction. Which department do you think is going to see the deepest one? DCLG? It is in fact, it is indeed, the artist formerly known as the Department for Communities and Local Government. Now, that has recently been renamed the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government. We're still not quite sure how we should pronounce that. HCLG? Somebody suggested my favourite, which is Mahoka Logo. <laughs> um, we could, of course, call it Mucklug, which does make it sound like it's sinking, which in budgetary terms, at least, is true. But, of course, some of these departments are already deviating from those spending plans, and that actually includes DCLG and the Ministry of Justice. And the reason for that is that they are responsible for public services which are under quite a bit of pressure. And the Chancellor has already had to make emergency cash injections for social care at MHCLG and to prisons at the Ministry of Justice. It's also true in departments who are expecting to see their budget increase, the NHS at the Department of Health. And as our sister publication, Performance Tracker, estimates, £10 billion has already been committed in those sort of emergency cash injections to get those services through. If government wants to stop having to put sticking plasters on, then it's going to need to transform how some of those services work over the next few years. So government faces a lot of challenges. Who's going to help them meet those challenges? There's, of course, the civil service. And what's happened to the civil service over the last few years? Well, let's start with staff numbers. You can see in the top left-hand corner that thick pink line shows you what was happening up to the spending review in 2010. There were about 470,000 civil servants at that point. Obviously, the spending review announced a number of budget cuts for departments, 
the 2012 Civil Service Reform Plan expected that staff numbers would fall to about 380,000 in 2015. What actually happened? Numbers fell to the spending review in 2015, and they fell a little bit beyond that as well, though never quite as low as that 380,000 figure. And then we get to June 2016. Can anybody think what that pink line in June 2016 might represent? Nobody? It is, of course, thank you, the referendum. And since then, we've seen an increase in civil service staff numbers by about 8,000 to 392,000. Now, obviously, a lot of that is due to Brexit. And this is what's happened in terms of percentage change to staff numbers at different departments. Now, two things probably stand out. One is the Department of Health, which has been through quite a big redundancy round. And the other is that we've got a few departments missing. That's because the Department for Exiting the European Union, the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy and the Department for International Trade were fairly new. It took a few quarters for us to get staff numbers, but we've taken their percentage change since then. So which departments are, have increased in size? Well, obviously, I suppose, the two departments created to deal with Brexit, but also those that are expecting quite a heavy Brexit workload. DEFRA, Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, 80% of whose work is framed by EU legislation, and the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, estimated to have more Brexit work streams than any other. We're also likely to see further recruitment. We know that the Home Office, for instance, is looking to recruit immigration staff. So those rises are largely because of Brexit, but actually there's something else going on if you dig into the data. While cuts continued at the most junior levels of the civil service into 2017, the sort of administrative jobs that you find across the country, at more senior levels, which tend to be the more policy-focused, London-based jobs, there has actually been some increase since 2012. And that's changed the grade profile of the civil service. Take a look at this. This is the grade profile of the civil service in 2010. It looks a bit like a pyramid if you squint hard enough. Um, you can see that most civil servants are in the most junior grades and then it gets thinner as you go up with each step in grade. So that's what it looked like in 2010. This is what it looked like in 2017. You can see that sort of flow up through the civil service and if I wash it back down, the light blue shows you the grades that now account for a greater percentage of civil servants and the grey, the grades that account for less. So we've got a slightly higher concentration at more senior levels. Let's see what happened to departments. Our famous grade spaceships, as they're sometimes called. Um, you can see that the ones in the top left, um, actually there's a lot of light blue going on across the board um, and that sort of seniority uh, thing happening. But if you look at the top left, you've got the kite-shaped DFID and DEXU, the unfortunately coffin-shaped cabinet office, <laughs> that tend to have a greater concentration of staff at higher levels. They're much more Whitehall-facing and policy-focused departments. Whereas if you look at the bottom row, the sort of church architecture uh, departments, if you like, the sort of St. Paul's of the Home Office and the Department for Work and Pensions, because they're much more public-facing, much more delivery-focused, they tend to have more staff at those more administrative levels. And hence, the shapes of departments can actually tell us quite a lot about what they do. So that's staff numbers and grade. What about um, something that Sir Jeremy Hayward, the Cabinet Secretary, called one of the top three priorities for the civil service? Diversity and inclusion. Well, let's start with gender. 
There's a nice stark 50% line across the screen for us all. And if we look at the most junior grades, we can actually see that women are in the majority. The purple bumps us over the 50% line, and it's actually increased from 57 to 58% since 2010. But as we go up with each step in grade, we can see that the percentage of women compared to men falls. Now, it's worth noting that there have been increases in the percentage of women at all the more senior grades. 41% of senior civil servants being female is a record high. But although that pipeline to the top is there, it's still not quite getting to the very highest levels. Five women currently lead Whitehall departments. And in 2017, of the five permanent secretary appointments, as many went to women, two, as they did to men with the surname Rycroft. So there is still some work to do, but there is definitely progress. It's a slightly less positive picture when we look at other measures of diversity. So let's start with ethnic diversity on the left-hand side of the screen. The UK population, 14% self-reported as being from an ethnic minority in the 2011 census. Now, if we see that where we know uh, the ethnicity of civil servants, the percentage from an ethnic minority background, we can see that it's lower than that level, though it is increasing. It's lower again at senior civil service level, and there's been a plateau in terms of increasing representation. It's a similar story on disability. According to the Department for Work and Pensions, about 18% of the working age population has a disability. That's lower in the whole civil service, though again increasing, and lower still in the senior civil service. The civil service clearly takes this incredibly seriously. Over the last few years, we've seen the Talent Action Plan, we've seen diversity champions, we've seen permanent secretary diversity objectives. But there is still more work to do. We've also now got the Civil Service Diversity and Inclusion Strategy launched last year. Now, that says that takes this problem very seriously, commits to action, and says that departments will be coming up with targets over the next few months. As the name of our project suggests, we will be monitoring Whitehall when we see those to see what happens. So we've looked at staff numbers, we've looked at grade, we've looked at diversity. What about staff morale, a vital sign of administrative health? Well, luckily, we have the Civil Service People Survey, which every year asks civil servants more than 60 questions about what they think, from everything about the team they work with to how they feel leadership and managing change is going in their organisation. These are the scores for the engagement index from 2016. Now, the engagement index is a single composite number for each department, which, out of 100, it's a percentage. It gives us a sense of their overall engagement score. And you can see on the left-hand side of the screen, we've got the Treasury, the Department for International Development, and the Foreign Office in the 70s. The whole civil service median is a bit further back. It's on 59%. So what's happened to those scores in the last year? Well, in tribute to the late, great Sabrice Forsyth, it is time for a game of play your civil service people survey engagement index scores right. So let's start with the whole civil service score. Do we think that in 2017 it is higher or lower? Higher? That's boring, you all got it right. Um, 61% is in fact a record high level. Let's go to the Treasury. Higher or lower? It's actually the same. Uh, Department for International Development, higher or lower? That's the same as, well, I haven't really thought this through, have I? <laughs> Let's skip forward a bit. How about the Department for Transport? Higher or lower? 
higher. <laughs> Education, higher or lower? <laughs> and how about the Ministry of Justice? That's also higher. Um, in fact, if we fulfill all of them in, you will see that most, the majority of departments have seen an increase in their engagement scores. Even where there have been falls, it's only been by one percentage point. Scores have risen across all of the subjects civil servants were asked about, with one exception, pay and benefits. So whatever upheaval might be happening around civil servants, they remain incredibly engaged, and in fact, as engaged as they've ever been with the jobs that they themselves are doing. So let's move on to that final story, data and transparency. Now, the good news is, of course, we're able to compile this report based on the hard work of lots of civil servants, some of them in this room, and the open data that government publishes. So thank you for that. Um, there is some less good news, which we'll come on to in terms of what departments are actually releasing. Now, we can think of data and transparency in many ways. One is to think about the things that departments are mandated to publish, and one is to think about how they respond to requests for information. So let's start with the things they're mandated to publish. Back in 2010, when David Cameron became Prime Minister, he was very big on open data and committed departments to publishing various data sets. One of those was the departmental organogram data set. Now, it might sound a bit technical and the sort of thing that's only of interest to people in this room, but actually it contains lots of really important information about senior staff and what they're doing, what their salaries are, what departments look like. Um, and it's supposed to be published every six months. So the blue shows us where those departmental organogram releases have been published, the pink where it hasn't. So you can see that the record is somewhat patchy and in fact from about 2015 onwards starts to tail off. Another one is spending over £25,000, which departments are supposed to publish monthly. Again, it's quite important to know what money government is spending, on what, and particularly in light of recent news, with whom. Sort of outsourcing and contracting, you can get a lot of data from this data set. So, blue shows us where those releases have been published, and in some cases where we don't know when they were published, but they have been published. The pinks are when those things are published late, and the dark grey, where they've not been published at all. Now, that applies to a fifth of releases over the last year. Now, why does any of that matter? Well, here at the Institute, we think that transparency is very important for two reasons. There is, of course, the accountability angle. Government has said it's going to publish these things to allow us to scrutinise it, and clearly that is not always happening. But there is also the effectiveness angle. If government's publishing this data, we would want it to be using it itself to improve its own operations. And again, if it's not happening, it suggests that that might not be happening as much as we would like it to. We have seen in the last few weeks, I should say, that the Government Digital Service has brought out some new guidance to encourage departments <coughs> to publish these uh, data sets, which is very welcome news. And hopefully, we'll turn this chart blue next year and encourage gov government departments to use their data much more effectively. So that's mandated data releases and the proactive publication. What about reactive response? Well, one method that parliamentarians have is to be able to ask parliamentary questions of government ministers. Now, which department do you think received more parliamentary questions from MPs and peers than any other in the 2016-17 session? Health. What a surprise. <laughs> I thought you might enjoy that one. Um, health, in fact, responsible for 
more, well, twice as much as any other department, has a ridiculously good record in responding to them on time as well. That can't be said across all departments, um, where timely response has fallen from 90% to 83% over the last session. Um, the picture is even worse when we look at one of those methods that we can all use to get information out of government. Freedom of information. Kind of given away the punchline there that it's about to get worse, but we'll, we'll go with this anyway. Um, so anyone can put in a freedom of information request to ask government departments for things. There may be very good reasons why departments decide not to release information. They've got exemptions on everything from national security to personal data. But we have seen the percentage of requests where information is withheld in full rising since 2010. If we add in those requests where information is withheld in part, that now applies to more than half of all FOI requests. Picture varies by department. Um, you're about to see lots of blue for those departments that grant more than 50% of their requests in full. And the darker the blue, the more open those departments are. So you see the Scotland office, the Wales office, they don't tend to get that many requests. But transport, education, work and pensions tend to get more, very open in responding to them. Let's have a look at the pinks, where under half of requests are granted in full. And again, the darker the pink, the worse the record. <coughs> And you can see, as well as things, I think, sort of getting worse over the time period, you can see that some departments are much more closed than others. But right at the bottom, we have the department for exiting the European Union. Did somebody say Brexit economic impact assessments? Um, but they have had the worst record over the last four quarters. Now, again, some departments may have more sensitive information than others, which means they don't release as much information but we have seen that worsening across government. And I know it's something that's starting to cause civil society a great deal of concern. So, in summary, our three stories. In politics, we've seen that that political situation, I mean, the very calling of the election delayed and disrupted a number of things, but since the result, the political situation has made governing more challenging. Civil service has grown largely, but not entirely because of Brexit, but there's still work to be done on diversity. And government should be using data better than it currently is. We all want a government which uses data more effectively to inform its decisions. We all want a parliament which is asking for the right data to hold government to account for those decisions. And we all want all of us and the rest of the public <coughs> to have the data we need to see how well government is working. Thank you very much. Gavin, terrific. Thanks very much. Sarah, what, what leaps out to you from, from all that? Well, first of all, Gavin, just to say a fantastic report and uh, congratulations to you and your team. As you say, a reshuffle two days before print dark guideline. Deadline. I don't even want to think about what that must have felt like for you that morning. Much worse than some ministers, I should imagine. Um, but no, there are lots of things, of course, that leap out of this report. And, and I think, first of all, that the impact of Brexit and having a hung parliament and what that's doing, and certainly as someone who's watching the impact of that from the outside, inside rather, I, I would say absolutely agree with the, uh, with the points that you make about the bandwidth and getting projects and de delivery of projects. And what, what can we do about that? So much more difficult to get legislation passed. And what does that mean for parliament? That's what interests me, certainly as chair of the liaison committee, does that mean that Parliament can help with some of the heavy lifting of getting important policies 
over the line. So if I take an area of particular interest to, to my committee, for example, around health and social care, um, making very difficult decisions around who is going to pay, um, I, I suspect that the Prime Minister, if she sticks with her current plans for a green paper, will find that very difficult to get across the line. Uh, we know there's a long history of people calling something a death tax, a dementia tax. Uh, the DUP have already indicated that they're not going to be happy with some of the likely proposals that are going to be on the table. So, so my view is, use Parliament. Uh, an offer was made to the Prime Minister at the Liaison Committee from several select committee chairs to say, we want to help you to take a cross-party approach to explain these difficult decisions and build support to help you get them across the line. So I think that's one thing I, I would like to pick out from your report. Um, I think the point about data, um, that's a, I think so important, uh, the transparency of data and it being published in a form that is meaningful to people. Um, I had an experience recently where I asked at uh, Health Questions about the bed occupancy levels, <coughs> which are running far higher than the recommended 85%. And the minister was able to truthfully reply that on Christmas Eve, um, the bed occupancy levels were just under 85%. Of course, he declined to mention that on every other day for the previous six weeks, it hadn't. And actually, the bed occupancy levels are running much around about 93%. But it's about being honest with people about data. You can imagine how government would respond if a surgeon asked about their operating performance, just quoted their best outcome and failed to mention that several other patients had died. Um, it would, you know, we need to have data in a form that's meaningful, um, not only in the way it's published, but also the way it's discussed. Um, and because unless that happens, we can't have an honest discussion about the scale of an underlying problem. And, and it seems to me that there's a, a lot of optimism bias in the way that government not only discusses its data, but presents it. Uh, and we need to see data presented in a, in a much more useful way, answering the problems that will help to change practice that needs to change, rather than presented in a way that, uh, that uh, shows government in the best possible light. Because I don't think that is the purpose of data. It, it should allow Parliament to hold government to account in, in the most effective way. So thank you very much for, for the points you made in your report about that. Um, the other thing that you've drawn attention to is the issue of diversity. And it's very encouraging to see the progress that's been made by the civil service in gender diversity, obviously far further to go in, in, in terms of disability and ethnic minority representation. But it strikes me that what the civil service has addressed is certainly for gender, I'm talking about here, is the pipeline issue. Um, but you've got further to go on the progression at the higher levels. Um, Parliament still has a serious problem with pipeline. How do we get more women to apply in the first place? Um, although it's doing better on the progression issue at last, in that we now have the same balance in terms of gender within Parliament, which is a third of women, we now have a third who are ministers. However, we're not doing quite so well, perhaps, on, uh, on the gender pay gap. If you look at the gender pay gap in the WHIPS office, for example, right now, it's pretty astonishing because all the senior WHIPS, are, bar one, are, um, are men, um, and all the, the photograph you will have seen recently of several new junior WHIPS, one of whom is unpaid, are women. So I think they, they need to address the, the balance um, in, in that regard. 
But otherwise, I think that the key pressing problem for Parliament is actually how do you get people to apply, um, encourage them to apply, and then nurture them and make sure that they are confident to be there in winnable seats. And I think that's the only way we're going to address the get, get a 50-50 Parliament if, if more is done and more attention is paid in, in that, uh, that side of things. So that's just a very quick rattle response, because I know you're not here to listen to me. It's more for us to have a discussion. But I, I just think it's a, a, a really, really good report. So congratulations. Sarah, thanks very much indeed for that. Let me just pick up on one of these things, which is data. Now, obviously, as the Institute argues, there are several reasons why uh, we want government to produce good data. One is for government's own sake, so that it's actually using that in decisions. Um, one is so that people out, outside uh, and, and businesses can use that data to um, you know, go ahead with their lives or create new businesses or whatever. But the one we're really talking about here is holding government to account. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering uh, why both of you think the trend has got worse in the sense of government's willingness to uh, put forward data, or as Sarah's uh, you know, uh, put a wrinkle on that, put forward data in a really straightforward way um, that is actually telling a, a straightforward, not a spun picture of what is going on. Uh, Gavin, what's your sense of why, why these uh, trends have turned in a direction that we wouldn't want? Well, I suppose the, the obvious example that springs to mind, and it's perhaps not something getting worse, although as you saw from the £25,000 spend chart, actually in some respects it has been, um, but where we perhaps haven't seen the progress that we would like to see and need to be able to hold government to account is around contracting and around outsourcing. Um, it's it's obviously very live. Indeed. Subject which the Institute is doing a great deal of work on, but we're very conscious of the lack of data. Exactly. And we, it's quite difficult, or certainly more difficult than it should be, to find out what money is going where, to whom, which companies are ultimately benefiting from these contracts and responsible for different types of public service. And that's to say nothing about the performance data behind a lot of these um, arrangements. You know, we, we just don't know how well these things are going. And I think, especially given the public interest in this um, area at the moment, that might be something we hear a lot more about over the next 12 months. Obviously, it's an interesting area because those contracts were you know, uh, written taking work from the public sector, uh, going into the private sector, and companies and government, to some extent, say, well, look, it becomes confidential. We don't, we not, we don't want to uh, release, release that data. Um, what, what do you think is the kind of riposte to, to that that might be made? Well, the Information Commissioner has previously said that the public should have the same right to know about public services, whether it's run by the public or run by private companies. Now, there are, of course, and we've done some work on this in the past, there are practical considerations around who would be responsible for reporting on that data. Would they be subject to freedom of information requests and how would all of that be administered? But in principle, it feels like the public should have the same right to know whoever is running their public service. And I think this is going to be one of the things that Carillion will change, um, because I think the public are just not going to be prepared to tolerate that kind of uh, the, the opacity that they've had up to now. So um, I, I hope that's one of the outcomes from the several select committee inquiries that will be following this up. Let me pick up one of the other points that Gavin made, which is about Brexit and the impact of Brexit on government generally mm -hmm. and its ability to pass legislation and, and, and so on. Uh, you had the figure at the beginning of you know, a, a very marked uh, 8,000 increase in the civil service after um, some considerable declines. Obviously, we don't, it's hard to put an exact figure uh, on how much of that is, is, is Brexit. But what, what is your sense, Sarah, of, of what Brexit is doing to life as normal? 
I think it is um, having a massive impact on life as normal. I mean, just to give you um, the, the, the impact that we'll see coming forward about secondary legislation and what that is going to do as well. As you say, there's an ever-shrinking timetable, and that's one of the impacts of the delay in the passing of the, of the, of, of the bill that we currently have before us. Um, and that means that the entire energy of the sort of legislative, what's, what is actually going to happen to, to, uh, to Parliament? How is it going to deal with that? Um, I think that's something that will be to keep an eye on for your future report. Mm. Let's have some questions. Well, the sun is now sort of blazing through on us, so you're all silhouetted beautifully. Start here on the aisle. Thank you very much. Uh, Greg Parston, Imperial College. Um, the question is, Sarah, you um, talked about the ministerial response you got on bed occupancy rates, and you tweeted kindly using the word disingenuous mm. about that response. Uh, if we're going to be holding Parliament accountable, how do we ensure that we're getting not just the data we need, but the but honesty about the data we need? Parliament has something called the National Audit Office, which is supposed to act on its behalf to ensure that, but that doesn't seem to be happening. How, how do we move forward? Well, it's difficult because, uh, of course, one of the things you can do is call it out when it happens, um, which I do do, um, and I, I hope that, and I know many of my colleagues do that as well, so, so make it public when you get unsatisfactory data. Um, the trouble is there's no mechanism by which I personally can force them to publish it in a different form. So I think sometimes get, people get a bit frustrated um, with the role of select committees because we can, we can publish inquiries, we can be critical, others can be critical, as indeed they have been. Um, but actually, ultimately, what are the powers we have to force them to do it in a different way? Anyone want to defend the, the NAO? Um, right, here on the aisle, Thank you, George Freeman, former Minister for Health and Business, and thank you, Ramwin, for inviting me to join the advisory board. I guess that means my revelations after ministerial life were sufficiently robust. Um, I wanted to ask a question about digital uh, procurement and digitalization. For, for those of us who think that the modernization of government can be an engine for the modernization of our economy and society, then digitalization is one of those key areas. If government went digital, and in its procurement worked properly with digital providers. We could build a phenomenal digital supply chain. I was responsible for that in health, and I've got a lot of reservations about the way it's being done. Do we track, do you track, um, how successfully departments are digitalizing their supply chain? I mean, one metric would be which departments are issuing a digital strategy on paper. I mean, literally going digital in how we pay how we receive funding submissions, how we track. If we announced, it seems to me, that we were actually going to digitalize the business of government, that in itself would create a very big supply chain. How are we doing? Really good question. Um, if I respond to that, um, that's a really good idea, actually. Um, and we're, we're looking for ideas for things that we should be digging into to build up a, a better picture of government and how it's performing. So I'll be taking that back to the team after this. Um, in the past, we have um, tried to get a handle on what's happening with digital, which, of course, is, as you suggest, an incredibly wide thing across government and means very different things to very different people. Um, we looked a little bit at um, sort of digital under the coalition, and you mentioned procurement and those sort of targets about getting more and more small and medium-sized enterprises um, to be contracted into it. 
haven't done anything recently in a data-driven sense on that, and we've got a few other reports that have come out from the Institute about the energy around digital in government more generally. It's actually quite interesting in the Brexit context about how much energy government will be able to spend on that with everything else that's happening. Um, but we'll uh, certainly take that away and uh, maybe you'll see something in Whitehall Monitor 2019, if not sooner. And, and in our other work, we have a, a project underway by Sally Howes, who uh, was previously at the National Audit Office and before that in the digital industry, on whether the, the Treasury's Green Book sort of focus on um, uh, how to approve projects, what, what that does to, is focus on value for money, which is something we obviously want to see, whether that is skewing um, what's happening in digital work and encouraging a focus on like, buying big bits of kit and, and the return on that rather than looking at the kind of transformation of how you do government in digital way, which is actually more what we want, but is much harder to measure, much harder to justify, and so gets squeezed out by the process. And that, that will report in... Uh, in April, so I can uh, offer you that, but, uh, but thanks, and thanks for the, the, the prod on that. Over here. Uh, over here. Wait for the microphone. Uh, Richard Lambert, uh, w one of the troubling charts in the summary is the one that shows deteriorating uh, confidence in the outcome of major government projects o over the past five years. And I suppose the question is, what's going on here? And given that uh, around Brexit, some very major projects are looming, particularly around the borders, how confident should we be that uh, these will be well managed? Um, so, if, for those of you um, who've not, it, in fact, if you want to look at the full report, we have a whole chapter on major projects which gives a little bit more detail, but just to cover some of that. Um, what we've seen over the last few years is that increasing risk across the government's major projects portfolio. This is by the, the government's own rating yes, of, of risk. Yes, that's right. So yeah. there's a RAG rating, a red, amber, green rating of the confidence that these projects will be delivered on time and on budget. It's overseen by the Infrastructure and Projects Authority, a joint Treasury and Cabinet Office unit. And at the moment, there are 143 projects in that portfolio. Now, that hasn't actually come down from last year, which is one of the interesting points. Is government still trying to do too much, especially with everything else that's going on? And especially, as you say, with I think the National Audit Office predicting that there might have to be 14 Brexit-related projects which are necessary for the immediate withdrawal in, in 2019. Um, there are a few things that are happening in there to bring those, those confidence ratings down. Again, one might be that we're still trying to focus on too many things, especially with the other challenges. There is a slight sort of statistical you know, project cycle thing whereby more successful projects might exit the portfolio and the ones that then come in for oversight are at an earlier stage and they're slightly riskier. So there's definitely some of that going on, but it does seem to be a more sustained um, trend across the projects and especially when you look at particular areas and um, sort of projects uh, that are particularly expensive over one billion, for instance, and um, their risk ratings have increased well, not considerably, but they have increased. And, and do we have a sense of why? Is it because of pressures on national finances? Is it because of the diversion of ministerial attention uh, onto other, other things? Do we have a, a sense of what, what's, um, what's causing this? Um, not from the portfolio data yeah. is the unfortunately uh, sort of restrictive answer. I don't have anything to add to that. I think it absolutely sums it up. Mm. And, but from, from your position um, uh, on um, committees on this, do you, do you have a sense of um, what's happening to confidence and Parliament's confidence in these things as well as government? No, I think there is concern. I think your, your graph speaks for itself in the number of red boxes that there are on your chart in, in the report. 
Um, but just reflecting back to um, what George was saying about the, the, the data point, it's about the quality of the delivery of some of these projects as well. If we look, for example, in health, around the digital challenge in health, there is so much more that could be done. Anyone who's spent time in an NHS setting will know how much more, there, how much more we could deliver if we had a, a proper digital rollout in health. But sometimes when we look at the past experience of trying to, for example, connecting for health, actually that project uh, didn't deliver as expected and hugely uh, overran its cost. So it's getting the quality right as well as actually delivering it. And while we're talking about data on major projects, I think there's, a, there's another quite important point to make, which is, it goes back to some other things that we've said already this morning. Um, people being scared about publishing data because it doesn't show government in the best light. I think people were quite sceptical back in 2013 when the major projects authority, as it then was, started to publish this data. And it actually said that there are government projects that are red rated and have a very low confidence rating. Um, the sky hasn't fallen in we're able to see what's going on at a, at a high level with some of these projects. And in a sense, it's encouraging the scrutiny of government. It helps us to understand government better. And it means that even when things are going wrong, that sort of honesty, I think, is quite appreciated. And they have to be um, comparable, fairly comparable year to year, not keep changing the baseline so you can't compare apples with pears. Um, if I can link, I mean, the Whitehall Monitor has to stick to the data, but if I can link this to our other work on infrastructure, which uh, another team has been doing, um, what, what, um, what that shows is, uh, as, as, as uh, finance houses have been saying for ages, the problem isn't shortage of money. It is either political risk, not being able to get the decisions through, not being able to get local support, uh, government being um, either tentative or just stuck in trying to get permission for those things, or arguments about contracts um, with, with those. That, that seems to be the sticking point. The actual lack of money is not the... Uh, lack of financing is not, is not the issue. It can we, be we in all, some cases. Yeah. I mean, if you look at health, the, the capital to revenue transfers, yeah. I think, right. have been a, quite a serious problem in health. Another, another bigger subject. Thanks for, the, thanks for the question. Over here in the middle. Thank you. So, a question for Sarah. Congratulations on being elected to chair the, the liaison you. committee. I know you'll bring fresh thinking to the role, and it's really exciting. I was delighted to hear what the comments you just made, that given government's lack of capacity and bandwidth, given Brexit, that you can see potentially some developments in role for Parliament beyond legislation and scrutiny to helping get difficult policy issues across the line. And I wondered if you felt that might involve uh, innovations in the way that Parliament operates and what those might be. Yes. Thank you. Would you like to say who you are? Sorry. Julie Mellor, Chair of the Young Foundation. Yes, lovely to see you, Julie. Um, I think that one thing that interests me, for example, is could we use um, the model of the Banking Commission, for example, um, Andrew Tyree's Banking Commission, a, the, a role of a special select committee uh, that you could see both um, Parliament, you know, across the, the Commons and the Lords, bringing in proper expertise to actually address and tackle really difficult issues of the day. Um, and actually then helping to persuade government. What made that successful, of course, was that there was government buy-in. 
and opposition buy-in. Um, it was signed uh, by, by both front benches and that gave it the stamp of authority. There was buy-in from the start. They would listen to the conclusions of the Banking Commission. And so I think that's a very interesting model. I'd, I'd love to see, and I think it's hugely disappointing that both front benches are still wanting to keep complete grip sometimes denying that there's a problem or accusing the other side of, uh, of uh, you know, just meaning, meaningless labels that we have attached. The, the debates sometimes in the Commons are really poor. Um, and it means that we just go round in circles, we'll never get anywhere. So, so I would really like to see government acknowledge that there is this issue for them with bandwidth with, and have the courage and vision to hand some of these key areas over to special select committees set up in the way that the Banking Commission was. Great. Next question. Okay, we've got one here on the aisle, and then I'll come to the back. I'm Robert Hazel, an associate here at the IFG. I have a question about what lies behind the engagement scores, because at first blush they seem counterintuitive. If I remember your figures right, Gavin, the Department of Health showed the biggest fall in uh, staff numbers and the biggest rise in engagement across the civil service as a whole. We know that the workload, especially because of Brexit, uh, has increased incredibly, uh, almost one suspects in some departments, possibly to the point of breakdown, and yet the engagement scores are going up. So question to you, to Sarah, or indeed to any civil servants in the room, if, Sarah, if Bronwyn would allow. Certainly allow, whether they uh, allow themselves is more the question, but um, uh, it's an, Gavin, why are they all so happy? It's an, it's an excellent question. Um, to take the health point specifically, I should have mentioned this in the presentation actually, because you, you did spot that there had been a massive jump in engagement despite um, redundancies. And the reason for that, of course, is that the redundancies started to happen when the 2016 survey was being conducted. Department of Health saw a record fall in its engagement score as a result of that redundancy round. So this year, with most of those staff having left, it sort of bounced back. Um, so the ones who stayed have been kept are very ones, happy. The ones who stayed have been very happy. Um, <laughs> it's actually interesting to look back at previous redundancy rounds as well to see what's happened. So health bounced back instantly. If you look at a department like DWP, it's actually managed to maintain its engagement score while reductions have been going on. But if you look at what happened at the Department for Education in the early 2010s, it took them about three years to get that score rising again because of the way that the redundancy round had been conducted. Um, more generally, um, thinking about resources and workloads, quite interesting to see the um, Department for Exiting the European Union score on that, where it has the lowest score, unsurprisingly, across government departments on that measure. But even there, they've risen by four points over the last year. So I'm not quite sure what's, what's happening there. It might be that for all of the changes that are going on, they're actually being quite well managed in departments or particular bits of departments. And um, there's a lot more detail, well, there's some more detail in the reports, and we'll be doing a lot more detail on our website fairly soon about the other things that drive um, engagement. Everything from how people feel about the team that they work with, how they feel about their manager, how they feel leadership and managing change is, um, is going in their organisation, which is quite an important one. Um, and, of course, the one that is always falling, pay and benefits. 
I thought it was quite interesting to look at how sort of um, learning and development was obviously mm. one of the drivers, oh. and I think that comes across in in other workforces that, that actually <coughs> continuing professional development does play a huge role in morale. And and so the, the, I thought the the chart on page forty three is quite telling um, because it does actually set out which of those seems to be the most influential. So I, I agree. I thought it was a very interesting point, but there there is more detail. I'll say on page forty three about that. And I should say as well, the Civil Service People Survey team at the Cabinet Office, some of whom may or may not be in this room right now, um, the publication they produce every year has um, a lot of technical detail on which particular themes are really driving uh, things, and um, there's a sort of wealth of data if people want to dig into it. Mm. Published in a very usable Excel format, which I would encourage everybody else to do as well, please. Mm. But I think it would be fascinating if some more of this could be captured to roll out to other workplaces where morale is, you know, one of the things that... Uh, uh, the Secretary of State said to me once was that uh, he was told when he came into the role that morale will never be lower. And um, there's, a, there's a kind of sense that the morale is always falling in, in some workforces. And, and, and like you, I was very surprised by that part of the data set. And I'd love to know more about how that was achieved and why. Maybe, maybe there are some civil servants in the room who could, uh, who could put their finger on what, what they feel about it. Does anyone want to chip in on that? OK, go on. And then I really am coming to be incredibly patient. Uh. Yeah, same. Neil Hadges, Office for National Statistics. <coughs> Just to pick up on a few of the points. Uh, are you coming back on this particular point? About yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Generally. So some of the engagements driven by um, the grade shift that we've had in the civil service. So there's more technical roles, so people feeling more engaged in those technical roles, you know, last a lot less admin duties to do and more exciting sort of work. We've had the Digital Economy Act rolled out, so we're doing a lot of work on um, admin data development, and also we're fully ramping up for the Census 2021, which is a lot of work and development and digital stuff going on there. And just one point to make, we keep talking about the gender pay gap, there's going to be a shift away from talking about the gender pay gap and more focus on a sex pay gap to recognise the difference between gender identity and sex because people are getting a bit confused about the same gender identity issue. So um, the census 2021, we hope to have a gender identity question on there. And, you know, I think... It, the Digital Econ Economy Act has given us a big opportunity to push a lot of admin data out there and make a lot more data available. I think that's why a lot of the engagement is going up. Right, well, thank you very much indeed. That's, that's, that's really helpful. At the back. Uh, Tony Travers from the LSE. Uh, uh, I want to pick up um, one word, actually, in the report, and it appears after the words David Cameron on page 12, and the word is mandated. And it's in relation to the publication of information in your excellent chart, um, which then shows that the mandatedness of the mandating didn't really work out, did it? And, of course, at the time, uh, this was seen as a big issue, the question of whether uh, departments would publish various kinds of data about their uh, expenses and spending and so on. This chart page on page 13 and for local authorities, under £500, no less, you know, a much smaller sum. And so I suppose my question from this long rambling observation is this. 
that uh, clearly departments don't, in some cases, take this very seriously. So it was mandated by the Prime Minister, but it wasn't taken very seriously. And that begs the question of whether it's the same for other things as well. This is quite a good way of getting a grip on how anything else the Prime Minister or anybody else mandates works. So, uh, in a sense, what does this chart tell us? And should what you'd imagine the Cabinet Office, brackets, doesn't do too well in the chart, might be one which would ensure that this fairly straightforward and simple um, delivery of an outcome, an output, would occur, and yet it hasn't. And if not this, why would anything else work? It's a very good question. Um, I mean, to, to go back to David Cameron and the discussions around that time, when he first came into office, there was some discussion about a right to data, the feeling that there might need to be some legislation underpinning some of those responsibilities uh, for departments to be publishing things, which obviously then changed. That didn't actually happen. Um, one thing that we found, so after we did some of those charts last year, particularly on uh, the organogram release, we decided we'd do something about it, and we tried to find out what was actually going on. So back in July, we hosted a hack day here at the Institute, a very 2005 solution to a problem, but it worked rather well. Well, we brought together lots of people who'd been working on organogram releases um, to, show, to actually work on the data and show the value that was contained in that data, but also to ask, well, why wasn't it happening? And I think the things that we picked up were people thought the political drive had gone out of the agenda and they weren't clear that they still had to be producing these things on the basis that they'd originally been told to. There were some people who said, well, we've got a smaller civil service, we've got fewer staff, some of this is a little bit more specialist and we've got competing priorities, we don't have the time to do it. Um, and then there were others who said, well, actually, this is too difficult to do. It takes an awful lot of time out of somebody's day um, when there are fewer staff around to do everything else. So, there were a number of reasons why that wasn't happening. I think the, the Government Digital Service um, refreshed guidance, which was published in December, helps clarify some of those things. It says that actually you should still be publishing this. Um, again, the sort of legal basis of that mandate is, is a really interesting question, which I don't have a particularly good answer to. Um, and it's, there's also been a lot of work that's gone on to make it easier to publish these things. So I think, again, until we get departments seeing the value and using the data themselves, they're probably just going to see it as a tick box exercise, which they have to, or in some cases, don't have to, actually. But what uh, you're not describing is a drive from the top in the way that David Cameron yes, tried to give it at that point. It's, it's interesting what's happened in terms of that over the last few months as well, because I think we did have the sense that it, it had dissipated somewhat. I think there was a negative story in the Sunday Times last summer which said that government was falling behind on certain data releases. And since then, we've seen a little bit more energy coming from number 10 on those issues, surprisingly. But I think, yes, it, we, political drive is a very, very important thing. There has been agenda. a culture change around this. But the thing that interests me, when you talk about mandated, you also have to say, well, what are the consequences? For a culture change for publishing. Uh, yeah, I think there has yeah. a culture change in, in a number of ways. One that run around that, which I think is highlighted, but the point about mandated is, what are the consequences for not doing it? Um, the answer is, you know, somebody publishes a report which might look mildly embarrassing, but there aren't any real consequences, so it becomes increasingly easy just to ignore it, uh, because nothing really happens. Nobody's head's on the block in, in, a, in a meaningful sense. Um, and then there's the point about don't collect meaningless data and overburden people with publishing things that aren't going to make a difference because their time is better used elsewhere. Um, but uh, going back to the culture change, it's not just about data. It's about, for example, uh, if you look at the work of select committees, are, 
our, our powers to call people and papers, actually what we're finding increasingly is that that's, that's not being allowed. So if you look at the call, for example, for the National Security Advisor to appear before the Defence Select Committee, it's just being reason, unreasonably blocked. Um, and, uh, and so I think that what Parliament will have to do is start to muscle up on insisting. I mean, we insisted, for example, on the publication of the Brexit impact papers. I have to say they were a little disappointing. I was expecting to be locked in there for days and read the whole thing in, in, uh, in under an hour. Um, but, uh, but actually, Parliament needs to go further in saying, well, we don't agree that this culture change should happen and insist on its powers of openness um, and, uh, and, and its ability to call people. And, and what can Parliament do on this? Because there is a difference of interest. I mean, you know, some officials yeah. and uh, the politicians are not going to want to publish stuff that is embarrassing. That is precisely what mm. Parliament wants to Absolutely. know and what people want to know. And so, and, and so it's about what powers uh, what Parliament powers can it has. Bring and, it. and that's one of the things that interested me in, uh, and drove me to apply for the position of liaison chair is how do we get Parliament to muscle up and insist on those powers? So we're having a tussle with the Prime Minister at the moment about the appearance of the National Security Advisor, simply because I think it's an important point of principle. And, and I do detect a culture change in, in saying, actually, nothing to see here. Well, there is something to see here, and we want to see it. Can I, can I just come back, just briefly? Mm. I mean, because on the, the point that there's no downside, I mean, I'm not making a simplistic point, but for citizens who fail to do something on time, like get their tax return in, yes. they're fine. Mm. Now, if the permanent secretary had their, sec their, had their pay docked, uh, if they didn't get their returns in on time, they get them in on time. So it is the fact, you're, and I'm agreeing with you, that the, there is no downside to ignoring the mandate of the Prime Minister. And worse than that, it would encourage a way of thinking that, well, Theresa May will be gone soon, so whatever she says, we don't need to take any notice of it. I mean, that's the implication of if David Cameron says it, then we do it, then he's not interested or goes, so we don't do it. And that would be true of any Prime Minister because they're always going to go soon. Okay, thanks. Over here by the door. Simon Judge, Government Finance Function. Um, this is not meant to sound as an ap apology for the civil service, but I think part of the issue on the mandation point is that departments do have to take a risk-based judgment about all these compliance requirements. Um, I would refer people to the wonderful Cabinet Office website on guidance on guidance, uh, <laughs> where there is 120 pages of this stuff. That we, ha that we have to we have to try and understand and have to try and comply. All right, but with. when you say risk-based judgment, what you know, what are the risks you're looking at there? Well, I, I don't, I, particularly in a small department, uh, I personally feel it's impossible to comply with all the guidance that comes out from the central government. So one has to take a judgment about what's important yeah. and what what you don't do. Otherwise, you spend all your time doing compliance and no time uh, actually supporting the government of the day and delivering their objectives. Right, so it's a time pressure primarily from your point. Right. Thanks. Any, any other questions? Okay, I think we have arrived then at the end of this particular discussion, but please do keep sending in your questions, um, suggestions for things that we should cover in this, suggestions for things that we um, should, uh, uh, where we should call for data. One of the next things that Gavin is going to do is publish our list of uh, data that we would like government now to produce <coughs> and... Um, and uh, uh, any correspondence on that theme are happily uh, received. Thank you very much indeed for coming. Thanks to Sarah and Gavin and his team.